Welcome back to another exciting episode of Catch-Ups in My Kitchen with me, Georgia Simmons, founder of Greedy Vegan and host of the podcast. This week we are joined by Martin, the founder of Grubby, a fully plant-based recipe box. I feel like Martin and I could have talked all day as there was a lot of alignment with what I'm going through with Greedy Vegan and the early days of Grubby. But we discuss everything from the initial idea to funding and raising investment to sustainability, to then Martin's personal journey to being a flexitarian. It's a fascinating episode with so many lessons and ultimately food is hard and recipe kits and boxes are even harder, but it's also extremely rewarding. And when at some moments you're thinking, what the hell am I doing? There are others when you're thinking, I am building something incredible. This is a really great episode, which I loved recording. So I really hope you love it too. And of course, have a lovely rest of your day. Martin, thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to talk all things Grabby. So how are you? I'm very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So to start off with, can you give us a quick elevator pitch on like who you are and what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm Martin, um, and I'm founder of Grubby, uh, and Grubby is uh, the UK's first uh, plant-based recipe kit. Um, so we provide all the pre-portioned ingredients that people need to cook delicious, healthy, plant-based meals at home. Amazing, I love it. I have heard so much about Grubby, seen it everywhere. I haven't tried it, because I love cooking myself, so like for me, yeah. I'd love to get, get you onto it. I know, <laughs> I feel like I need to try it, because I love it, and all your recipes look amazing. But before we get into all things grubby, can you, we're going to do a quick fire round yep. about food. So, sweet or savoury? Sweet, probably now. Juicy burger or overloaded salad? Juicy burger, probably. Crisps or popcorn? Popcorn, salted. Ice cream or sorbet? Sorbet. Cook in or eat out? Cook in, it's got to be. Yeah, and <laughs> what is your favourite delivery? Oof. It's a good question. Probably a Chinese of some description. Yeah. I'm not sure what what my particular dish would be, but yeah, Chinese is a good take. Yeah, I guess you can't really make that at home, like to the extent of a good Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love like a good chili oil on a Chinese. Yeah, Yeah. nice one. Okay, so I would love to start at the beginning of the grubby journey. So I know you had a like previous career within food and hospitality, but what was the pivotal moment that made you think, I want to start grubby? That's a good question. So at the time I was working for like a contract catering business. Um, so we would, you know, create um, restaurant solutions within office buildings, universities, hospitals, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I was a sales guy that would go in and you'd go into a particular office and look at what their hospitality would look like, whether that was restaurants, cafes, um, hospitality kind of restaurants within that building. Um, and we were coming up with concepts that people could grab as they left work and you know there was nothing at the end of the day and I sort of had this feeling that okay I'm leaving work and I'm going to you know whatever the local supermarket is trying to pick up ingredients figure out what to cook and I'd started to use recipe kits you know um, subscription services and thought is there not a way that we can create like an impulse version of this which is ironic now because we're actually a subscription service. Yeah. Um, but the original concept was sort of grab and go recipe kits as you left work. So I pitched it internally within the business and um, eventually realized that it probably wasn't gonna happen. Recipe kits are quite complicated things. Um, and I had this kind of like burning feeling that there had to be an easier way of doing that. Um, so I had started to eat a lot more plant-based food at the time. Um, and my initial sort of feeling was, my God, this is complicated. Um, you know, going to way back, I'd started as a chef when I was sort of 16, part-time, if you can call it a chef, it was very basic. But, um, and, you know, so I had basic ability in the kitchen, but trying to transition to eating more plant-based was like, God, this is just really, really difficult mm-hmm. um, to make it taste good, make it simple, quickly, all that stuff. So that was the concept, was make a plant-based recipe kit that you could grab as you left work, super easy, get it in workplaces, train stations, tube stations, all that. Um, then the small matter of COVID came along, um, which threw <laughs> a bit of a span in the works. Yeah. But prior to that, I basically quit my job. I had this niggling feeling that, you know, there was an opportunity to, to do it. 
Um, and that's the only way to sort of describe it really it was kind of, you know, I, I just had this like burning feeling that I just had to get out and, and try it. Um, mm. So I did probably the most stupid thing and just quit without any kind of plan. And, um, you know, loads of people at the time sort of said, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, um, and, and yeah, it just felt like the right thing to do. And I wouldn't necessarily advise that to, <laughs> to most people, but that's what I ended up doing. Were you scared when you quit your job? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. But I suppose it was like naive sort of stupidity, really, mm. um, that, that kicked in. I think anybody that's sort of, you know, I enjoyed my job. You know, I had, you know, worked with great people and uh, learned like a huge amount of that company. Um, and it set me up in like a, in a really, really good way. Um, you know, sales is quite sort of broad. You know, you're looking at finances, you're working with operations, you're de- designing menus, de- you're looking, working with su- the suppliers that are sort of designing the actual restaurant itself and stuff. So taught me like loads but yeah I definitely wasn't prepared for the kind of you know the deep end of just being like okay I'm waking up this morning and nobody's gonna tell me what to do yeah and you know you're in your flat and you're going okay like what do I need to do today yeah now what it's a scary one it really really is like that and um you know getting a sort of notepad out a blank sheet of paper and going gonna make a to-do list now but what's gonna be on it you know, I that's, know. That's, it's, the, that's the tricky it really bit. is terrifying but I also think naivety is one thing that you kind of have to have before you go into something like that because if you probably knew now I knew what then what you know now I'm pretty sure you'd be thinking twice about like a decision like that oh, because definitely. yeah when you if, go I, if I knew blind, how complicated it was gonna be I definitely <laughs> wouldn't have done yeah, it for sure so so you had the idea you started with that blank sheet of paper wrote out the to-do list obviously yeah. it was more b2b and you i'm guessing you pivoted b2c due to covid was that how it was yeah pr- pretty much um so yeah i've been been basically i'd worked on it for about a year so i developed the rest of the first sort of 30 40 recipes in my flat making loads of mistakes like visiting my you know local tesco store and going picking up ingredients every day and then having to go back again because i'd balled it up you know um and and then we launched it or i launched it um yeah after about a year of, of kind of developing all these recipes um got got an office manager to agree to essentially have like what was a glorified shelving unit at the front of the office with an isetal on it um that was you know double sticky taped onto it um and so i would just like lurk in the background i'd i you know watch people like c- come up to this thing and you know four or five people a day would would buy a, a recipe kit and i'd you know go up to them and give them a little feedback card to say it'd be great if you could just fill out this google form to like tell me what it was like um so that's how it started uh then a guy invested 100k sort of fast forwarding a little bit um later that year a guy called rob hamilton who was our like first angel investor um and that was at like a sort of i guess like a dragon's den style pitching event um called the supper club um which is sort of a, a big group of kind of sort of serial entrepreneurs that have got money to invest and they have a couple of investor days each year so I got really really fortunate with that um and that was obviously like a really pivotal moment because I'd put a lot of my own money in I didn't have very much of that left there wasn't very much of it in the first place to be honest but um and so he'd invested a month or so later after his investment COVID came along and he sort of jokes now it was like I was literally I was thinking it was the worst investment I've ever made yeah into anything. of course oh god <laughs> um, and I landed back home at mum and dad's um, in, in the Midlands um, and I remember waking up on that I think it was the 24th of March the morning after Boris had made the announcement and just sort of sitting there with a the coffee and going okay now what do I <laughs> what do what the hell am I going to do god it's really it is really really scary but I think yeah. those initial kind of purchases in the offices would have taught you so much I'm sure about like what you're now doing yeah and I think what is you know when you're starting logistically can you kind of go back a bit like the early grind like logistically on your own because I've toyed with the idea about doing my own recipe kit and a lot of people have said you should go down that route because I've got recipe cards with greedy vegan and like we're kind of there but we're not because we provide products and we're yeah, not yeah. you know um and I just the logistics of it freaked me out I was like yeah. I don't know how this is going to work I don't know yeah. how I can do it at this point by myself so how did you do it by yourself and like when was the moment that you thought I need to get more of a team behind me yeah so initially I suppose it was kind of in my mind it was create the recipes to start with um and make that that aspect really good so make the product really really good 
don't worry too much about you know where I was going to get the ingredients or I definitely wasn't worrying about that initially um, so I was just trying to create 30 recipes that were going to be really tasty really easy and then as I was going kind of you know thinking okay maybe I need to find out where to be able to get these things packed like eventually so I was doing a bit of research in the background um, but for me the focus was like always like just make the product good to start with and then worry about the rest of, of it um so but yeah it was i guess just in terms of actual what i had to do is it was just a, a load of researching a load of googling and just being absolutely persistent with everybody because i think in those early stages what you don't get from those suppliers they just don't care you know mm. realistically they don't give a shit you know you're a small supplier um that you're going to be ordering tiny amount of quantities so you need somebody to essentially back you and say this guy's got something here you know, we're going to sort of not invest, but, you know, they're going to send you like tiny amount of SKUs that they've got to put together on some separate packing line to everything else because they're literally packing a hundred of it, which t to them will be a tiny, tiny volume. Mm. Um, so that happened with a few suppliers, basically. And, you know, I still have so much. Like, I'm so grateful to some of those people that took that sort of leap of faith and said, you know what? we're going to do this with, with this guy and we're going to send him stock. We're not going to charge him delivery, that sort of thing. Because if you don't have those people that back you, then it is, it's so, so challenging. Mm. Um, and, you know, most of those suppliers that we sort of picked up in the early days, we're, we're still sort of working with now. Um, and a lot of that is to do with just that strength in, in relationship and, and bond that I, I feel to those people. Um, so yeah yeah no I agree I mean I know from my experience I was looking to kind of partner with a wholesaler mm. kind of to branch out and increase our range of stocks I couldn't afford to keep like holding everything yeah. and obviously that comes with like minimum order quantities and now I've got a relationship with one where I can just drive and collect which doesn't really work logistically that well yeah but in terms of getting my hands on that like it just works and sometimes I'll be like about to leave the house to go and like pick it up and they'd have just delivered it. And I'm yeah. like, oh my God, thank you. Like, yeah. and it's just those small things make a huge, huge difference in those early days. So they really do. I mean, we, we would go down to, uh, so Songyi was the first employee. She's still still with us now. She's our operations manager. She's amazing. But, um, you know, in the, uh, in the early days, we would be going down to supermarkets. We'd be short of whatever the product might be, like some Thai green curry paste or some Odie cream or whatever. And I remember we'd be on the phone to each other, like we'd be cycling around London, like trying to find these ingredients in supermarkets because we knew we had to deliver to these customers in like three hours. And every single, like it seemed like every single supermarket in London had sold out. We'd like clock up so many miles trying to find like two particular ingredients. Yeah. So like in the early days, some of it is essentially just hustling and doing what you need to do. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That was like me at Christmas. I oversold a bit and I was like, oh my God, it's Christmas, Christmas food. Like that's a massive yeah, deal. Yeah. I was like calling all these different places and like reserving yeah. things and like driving around. But yeah. I think those are the memories that will kind of last so long. And like at the time it's so stressful and intense, but like looking back, you're like, oh, that was kind of fun. And like now yeah. I'm sure the stress is as you grow, the problems grow. Yeah. So I'm sure, yeah. yeah. So obviously you spoke about you had an investor and that was amazing and yeah. like, I read an article and it said like one of your biggest things that you learn is like where you spend money and being mm. like, you know, every penny counts. Mm. And I think that's a really impressive lesson in a way because often with the startup, it's you hear a lot about like throwing money at things and like throwing yeah. money at marketing and this and that. And you're like, wow, like where's all this money coming from? But yeah. for you to say that like being a bit more careful with, with money is a really good lesson. I loved because... Mm it is so true and like money doesn't grow on trees and as a startup it is really hard to like fund everything so can you talk a bit about the making every penny count type thing yeah yeah I mean I think that was you know definitely came from the early days you know when I had when I was using my own money when you're using your own money there is nothing sort of uh, more motivating than making sure you're spending it wisely and thinking about how you're spending it but even when we got that first 100k I think that you know Rob very much drilled into me then it was like this money is not going to last forever you, you know 100k sounds like a lot of money but it, it really isn't and it, and it really isn't <laughs> um so you know being really frugal and making decisions that you think very very carefully about in those early days I think is is super critical um 
and you know now when you look at the sort of you know macroeconomic climate which is climate which is you know obviously a bit of a shit show at the moment um that's becoming even more pertinent um you know investors are hyper focused on on profitability and and you know to to do that you have got to be frugal and you know make very very cost effective decisions um so you know obviously investment is a great thing if you get lots of investment maybe you do make decisions that you know are sort of a bit sort of more kind of punchy and bold and spending on big things but yeah definitely in those early stages i think it's like super important to, to prove out the concept by being very very sort of cost efficient with, with decisions for mm, sure no definitely and i think one thing that's really great with grubby is like you definitely kind of hit the market at the right time i think plant-based grew a lot over covid where people yeah. were more aware of their health definitely. um but how else have you've got the word out there because I think personally the word is out there a lot like I hear grubby loads like credit to you guys and the team like I do hear it a lot that is good to hear Um, but how have you found how have you guys got the word out there yeah so I mean Covid was a weird one because it was like we had to pivot the whole business from being B2B nobody knew who the hell we were so it wasn't like with a lot of the other recipe kits it was a real blessing you know they had they couldn't even cope with the amount of orders they were getting it was insane you know some of them had to close their websites um, that didn't happen for us at all. You know, we didn't even have a website. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my mate Paul, who now is our technical director, he had gone away traveling just before COVID and uh, came back seven days later and was like, you know, let's let's bodge together a website together and, and get this direct-to-consumer thing off the ground. So when we initially put that together, the, the thing was, okay, how are we going to get people to come to this website? You know, we, we've got a limited amount of budget. We can't be throwing it at social media ads and we did a little bit of that um but you know there had to be like another way to get the word out so my sort of old school kind of i guess sales background said well face to face is 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 the way to do that um and yeah in those at the very beginning you know i was going out knocking on doors um i contacted every single person i knew who was in lockdown at the time to be like can you just come and help me deliver some flyers on a sunday um you know again it's just super great for some of those people that sort of supported at that point um you know some people brought the whole family out to come and deliver flyers around hackney and i remember one of those flyers that landed that guy is still a customer today and and he spent like over two grand with with grubby um so yeah basically we we did a lot of face-to-face selling we did a lot of physical flyers um both of which are quite old school, but they are effective and they do work if you can get the creative right um, and you get the right salespeople. Um, and then on the back of that, we started to recruit a small team of, of students to go out and, and you know do exactly that. Um, we paid them on, on sort of mainly commission, um, which got sort of that initial churn of customers coming through. Um, and we had one or two really good salespeople um, that just absolutely smashed it. Mm. Um, and we were doing other bits in the background to drive people to the website as well uh, and you know try and optimize the experience we were using shopify which was which we've moved away from completely and built our own tech stack now but you know that was how we kind of started it um and yeah so i'm definitely a big believer in some of those sort of old school tactics Mm. um not just the digital stuff which obviously we we now do a lot of but that's sort of how it how it started was just like basically pure hustling really definitely and i think you know plant-based although it's massively grown and is still growing mm. like back in kind of 2019 it was still new and like you probably had to have that face-to-face conversation with someone to convert them to try it yeah i think you might just see a picture or like an image on instagram and it might not be enough to convert yeah so i think yeah those face-to-face you can't really go wrong with that and if you've got a compelling salesperson then you're yeah it's just explaining the benefits of it that you wouldn't it's very hard to get that across in in a sort of social media ad yeah, yeah. no completely Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode, but just a quick note about Greedy Vegan. There is so much alignment between Greedy Vegan and Grubby, and with Grubby trying to make eating plant-based easier, simpler, and tasty, that is exactly what we are trying to do. By simplifying what products are out there and by making the really amazing products and brands easy and convenient for you to get your hands on. So if you want to try a Greedy Vegan box, it does really complement meal kits and recipe boxes well, then head to www.greedyvegan.uk. 
And one other thing I love about Gravity, which I want to talk about, is the um, Spotify playlist. Yeah. Now, this is really cool and quite different. So, <laughs> what made you do this? So, every recipe, has it got a playlist yeah. per recipe, per, like, order? What's the score with that? Yeah. So, every recipe has a Spotify playlist. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the backstory to that was was pretty much like a conversation we had with our branding guys um, that helped put the brand together. Uh, and we wanted it to be, like, super, super playful. You know, I know from sort of personal experience that the cooking experience can be like you know like everybody finds occasionally like laborious you know a chore um and we wanted that to break that down and try and make it a bit more fun so that Mm. was just one of those things it was like you know this is about tuning out this is about enjoying the experience you know when you get your grubby box and you empty your bag of ingredients you're like right i'm just gonna stick on some tunes and you know enjoy the process really um and so that's where it came about and to be honest, now, like further down the line, now we've got 150 recipes. Putting those playlists together is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. <laughs> but, uh, Why did I decide to do this? I'm now yeah. tied to it. <laughs> Literally, our, our uh, recipe development, um, head of recipe development, Ferg, messaged me the other day saying, yeah, we've got another 24 playlists together to put together. Can you can you do that? I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, God. But I guess in a way it's really nice because it makes it inclusive to like, let's say a family has ordered the box or, yeah. and they get all the recipes. Like, it makes it more fun and like an experience. Yeah. And yeah. I think nowadays kind of cooking your evening meal is a really good time to get everyone to kind of together and like sit and talk and chat. And like, that's kind of why we've done the podcast. Like food is such a facilitator for like memories Definitely. and experiences and yeah. like learning and talking and sharing. And I think having a Spotify playlist is a really good way of like creating that moment. Whereas normally it can just be like, Oh, I can't bother to do this. And like, yeah, it's just like a dread whereas actually it'll make you like relax and enjoy and yeah. like yeah I think well, we get really like cool. some some parents who'll get in touch and say you know i just give the bag of ingredients to to my son or daughter you know they stick their headphones on and they go and they cook dinner and they've just like it's a revelation for them because their son or daughter like never cooks Amazing. and they just get their grow bag and like stick on some tunes and it's like Great. Great. Didn't, didn't realise that was a thing. But yeah. yeah. Also, like, it takes the decision making out of, like, choosing your own music. Like, it's just all sorted. It's yeah. like, win-win. Whether it's all, yeah, whether it's all good, I'm not sure. But yeah, but still, it's like... definite cheese on there, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I think it's great. So I now want to talk about sustainability, which yeah. I know is kind of at the core of what you guys do. So, but for a startup, I feel like sustainability can be quite expensive. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about how important sustainability is for Grubby, but also like the cost that you guys have to go through for mm. making it sustainable? Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I guess Grubby as a, as a product is, is naturally, you know, very sustainable. It's plant-based um, and, you know, that has, you know, environmental benefits, um, of course. But I think we wanted to go, we wanted to go further than that. And I guess like, one of the ways it started was we started delivering by bike originally literally on my bike and songy's bike and veg crates in the front of them and it was actually a really efficient way of of delivering in local areas um and then as we started to use them we were like okay you know let's try and see who else is out there that does bike deliveries so we came across pedal me um and we, we used them um and uh they were able to get 70 grubby boxes on the back of a massive trailer on the back of a bike and then we now use Zedify, um, same same kind of thing. And, you know, that was just kind of like, you know, if we had a, a diesel van going around delivering those boxes, it would, the emissions would be insane. And so we thought, you know, surely there's a way of, of rolling that out. And I think then, you know, I'd, I'd never really had sort of massive amounts of exposure to, to that world, to be honest. I don't profess to be any sustainability expert or anything, but I think it really made my ears prick up when we started to do those things and think, we've got the opportunity to, to have an impact here. Um, and and then not just from a sustainability point of view, but from an ethical standpoint and what else we could do as a business. Um, so that's where the whole one more child thing came about, where we decided that we were gonna donate a meal to a child in poverty for every box. Um, and they're a charity out in Uganda. And um, I got speaking to the founder of that charity. Um, and uh, it was, a fairly simple way that we could sort of support by you know basically every box that we sold we donate a meal to them um so these things just sort of like came about quite naturally i guess um but you know in answer to to your question the cost of it um 
products are definitely you know the vast majority of things that are sustainable do have like a green premium the things that you're buying most of the time it can be sort of anywhere between 10 and 30 percent um sort of increase in in cost on those ingredients um but you know for our deliveries actually the bike deliveries were slightly cheaper than than delivering by by van um and so that was one thing that kind of surprised me and i was like well if it's cheaper and we can deliver by bike let's just bloody do it yeah um so you know, it's not the easiest thing to roll out to sort of rural communities in, in Scotland, but um, you know, no. um, the, the sort of long-term aim is that you want to have bike deliveries in key cities. Um, and, you know, as, as I say, the product itself, you know, we have tried to, I guess, educate our customers in the effects that they're having through our footprint tracker, which, you know, we can maybe talk about as mm. well. I think the footprint tracker is really good because I think it's really easy to not think about your effect on the environment when you're just living day to day. But if yeah. you see, because I think you guys, don't you compare like what your footprint would be if it was if you were consuming like a meat heavy meal compared yeah. to plant-based meal. And I think that's really good because, you know, it's a lot, it's very easy to kind of preach about it's amazing for the environment, like keep, you know, eat plant-based, it's great, it's great. Yeah. But like if you're seeing the comparison of the two, yeah. that will really hit home for people. Like, oh wow, like that is really yeah. interesting. So. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, I mean, I guess like elephant in the room is I'm I'm not fully vegan, um, yeah. and you know I I eat a lot of plant based food like way more than I used to. Probably eat meat once or twice a week, um, and but I didn't necessarily realise the sort of health impact of eating less meat, but also the environmental impact, and and because of that, I think we wanted to be able to show customers okay. By getting grubby, because the vast majority of our customers aren't vegan, you mm. know. You know, I think it's about the last survey we did. It was it was over eighty percent that sort of identified as flexitarian, essentially meaning that you know they eat anything, yes. <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, and you know they dabble in plants, but they want to reduce their meat intake. And so we wanted to, when they got grubby, we wanted to say to them, look at the impact that you're having as an individual. Mm. Um, and that's where this whole idea of the, the footprint tracker came about, which was like effectively like a little dashboard in your account that showed you based on the exact recipes that you've had. We did, we worked with a company called My Emissions, which basically went through all of our recipe bank and they do it for all new recipes as well. And looked at all the ingredients in that recipes, the supply chain and compared that to the nearest meat equivalent of that meal. So say it was a mushroom stroganoff, they'd be comparing that to a beef stroganoff wow. and the footprint of a, a beef stroganoff versus that. Um, and so that customers would literally over time be able to see this is the amount of CO2 I've saved, um, you know, these amount of meals I've donated, uh, these amount of exact amount of veg portions that I've consumed, mm. the calories, this, that and the other. So they're sort of building a bit of a picture of the impact they're having on their health, but also the impact they're having on, on their environment. And we try to equate it to like really simple things like trips traveled to you know Amsterdam or like various different places around the world um so no, I yeah think that's so good it makes it more real because often like you hear these statistics and numbers and people are like I don't care yeah I don't, I care. don't even know what 100 kilograms of CO2 yeah, looks like, like. And who does like yeah that doesn't make any sense but you're making it very like realistic and like yeah. real which is really really good and what about packaging because I know you guys work quite hard on like your packaging and making it as like little as possible but I know some recipe kits out there I don't know whether you know things yeah. have really changed but often you can find it really overly packaged. Yeah. So in terms of like sustainability in that, in that sense, how have you worked on that? Yeah, so initially and you know until very recently, basically our kits have been, you know, fine to be ambient, which was a deliberate move from the start because we knew that if we had veg and dry store ingredients that, you know, by law they didn't need to be refrigerated as long as they were kept in like a, you know, reasonable kind of temperature environment. So that meant that we didn't have to use, you know, heavy insulation, ice packs, all the rest of it. And that immediately like, stripped out a huge amount of packaging from our, from our boxes compared to the competitors. Um, we've recently started to introduce meat alternative products and tofus and things like that, that, some of which do require refrigeration. So we have started to implement like, you know, s some level of insulation within our boxes, um, but not all of them. And but that, that stripped away a lot. Mm. But then, yeah, trying to be sustainable with your packaging is immensely challenging. Like, you know, plastic, frustrating as it is, it does a bloody good job at keeping certain foods fresh. Yeah. And there isn't any getting away from that. Um, there's some great products coming out, many of which we use, you know, things like 
compostable punnets for tomatoes and mushrooms, which is a thing that we use, they're probably about 10p more expensive per unit than the nearest plastic alternative, which costs us an absolute fortune. Mm. Um, and But those sorts of decisions, the decisions you've got to take to go, where are we pitching our product? Um, you know, who are we trying to appeal to here? So, yeah, going back to your original thing is it, it can get quite expensive. Um, but yeah, there's some things like, you know, compostable packets for herbs. You know, we've tried so many different materials. There's definitely pretty interesting things coming down the line in that area. But, you know, a lot of them sap the, more, the moisture out of those things. And then, you know, you're sending people herbs that get quite limp when they get to the customer and then you get complaints. And so there's no straightforward answer, basically. Yeah. And we've just had a view that we'll, we'll try our absolute best to find those products within reason and within the sort of budget constraints that we have. Um, you know, the, the bigger um, recipe kits out there, um, you know, they have more money to spend on, on research in those areas and trialing different stuff that we possibly don't. So mm. um, yeah, we're, we're doing our best and, and that's that's all you can do. I, I mean, mean, yeah, that is all you can do. I mean, yeah. it is kind of, it's like a losing battle to try and do everything well. And especially you can't please everybody days. either. Yeah. No, yeah. definitely not. So. The decision to add normally alternatives is really interesting. How have you found the demand for that? Because often you get people going plant-based because they want to eat whole foods and healthy and cut back. And yeah. you hear so many arguments about the pros and cons for like yeah. alternatives. Is it better for me? Is it not? But as a recipe box, how have you seen the demand for meat alternatives? Yeah, great question. I mean, so we started out being kind of very much, okay, make this all about plants and whole foods and you know, don't include meat alternatives, and um, I wasn't the biggest tofu fan, so that sort of didn't, didn't get yeah. into the initial recipes. Um, and so, yeah, that that's how we sort of felt originally uh, was make it all about plants. But then customers started to say, "Oh, there's some brilliant meat alternative products out there." I'd started to, you know, when I was eating out, you know, I'd always try like the, the you know, the best kind of vegan burger and um, the different sausages and bacon's and all the sort of stuff that was coming out. And I thought some of these are really good mm. um and also by using meat alternatives you are actually reducing the, num the number of ingredients you that you have to put in into a into a uh, recipe because often with plant-based food you know the, ch the real challenge is limiting the number of ingredients and maximizing flavor whereas in like any sort of meat fish dish where you've got you know three or four different elements and that's kind of it and maybe a sauce um, whereas with plant-based, you've really got to work very, very hard to like inject flavour into a dish, and that does require like quite a lot of ingredients a lot of the time. So that was what was also quite appealing about it. Um, and then you know we got speaking to different brands like this, and I had Andy Shovel on, and yeah. you know Herrera, and um, and and various others like the V and whatnot. And we were testing those products, and there's some brilliant new ones coming out as well that are less processed the likes of like fable um mm. and you know who are using mushrooms shiitake mushrooms to to create this sort of really really meaty texture and some incredible stuff and, and basically yeah we've started to, started to use it started to implement it into dishes and the feedback's been really really good and you we, we i mean yeah we absolutely love testing that stuff in the kitchen because yeah it's just some of it's unbelievable yeah it is amazing and like what people can create now with just like mushrooms like we have fable on greedy vegan and like it's such a popular product and yeah. it's amazing like it's just mushrooms but yeah it's amazing and it i guess really is good. mushrooms can create such meaty texture so yeah. no i think that's so nice so you mentioned a bit about the fact that you're not vegan you're like 100 of the time i think that's really nice to hear like i mean yeah. i personally am yeah but like i'm not vegan because i have greedy vegan like i was anyway yeah um so do you how was your journey to being more plant-based and yeah. how are you now within like your diet yeah so i guess yeah i'd started to eat a lot more plant-based foods maybe two years before grubby started um it actually the original concept was going to be vegetarian um and you know i love cheese yeah <laughs> it's one one big aspect of that and uh, I sort of thought that plant-based was going to be really, really hard to to sort of make taste good and simple and all these different things that a recipe kit sort of has to be. Um, and But then as I started the recipe development process, I realised, wow, there's some like insane stuff you can do with this. Um, you know, and, the, and different products that I hadn't really used, to be honest. And it might sound crazy, but like things like miso and, you know, stuff like that was quite new to me. And yeah. I started to play with these different products and thought, 
yeah, this is like, there's stuff you can do with this. Um, and then as time went on, like more and more stuff was coming out, like, you know, I don't know, I, like Oatly Cream, amazing products. I don't like, you know, name too many brands, but like, you know, blitzing that up with like cashews and soy and lemon juice, um, and you've got an amazing carbonara, like straight yeah. off the bat, carbonara sauce. Um, so I, I guess I started to realize that there was things you could do which were like really innovative um, and would like really give people a bit of surprise and being like, that's an interesting little technique, I'll use that again. Um, and I think I'm always like, yeah, I'm super honest, like, you know, about, about not being vegan. I don't, you know, we don't want to necessarily just appeal to vegans. That's not what we're about. We, we want to make it easier for everybody to like build plants into their diet. You know, whether that be one day a week, you know, for somebody that might actually be a real challenge, you know, for others, you know, you know, fine. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to make it easier and more accessible to everybody to do that in like a really, really simple way. And do you feel like the pressure to be plant based? Um, I don't think so. No, like I'm, I'm quite happy with, with my diet as it is, I think. Mm. Like I, I definitely am very, very conscious of it and I definitely do make conscious effort every single week to limit the amount of meat and fish I eat mm -hmm. and I think really you know I mean in the evenings I cook grubby basically every night yeah <laughs> unless I'm out you know yeah so yeah that's sort of how I think about it is when I'm cooking at home I, I tend not to use meat or fish yeah no completely so I now want to touch a bit on funding and financing I know yeah. you've mentioned that you did have like an angel investor but I mean all these things are expensive and I'm sure that's not yeah. what you've had so can you express a bit about how you raised money for Grubby? Yeah so I mean the current climate is is really challenging as I'm sure you'll hear from every single founder out there um, but yeah we've I mean so far to date we've, we've raised sort of over five million um, in the space of three years um, and you know it started off with with an angel investor um, and really that's where it starts for most people so you know somebody's got to take a punt on you really because in those early days you have very little proof of concept and you've just got to show them as much you know of your sort of I guess efforts to make it work and showing them something is there in the product um, so was really fortunate to get to get Rob on board initially um, and then the next round that we did uh, we raised 1.4 million in the end which was a combination of crowds and angel investors so a lot of what people maybe don't know about the crowd is that a lot of the time when you go live on the crowd you've already done like the vast majority of the rounds when you go live so people say oh we're going live and it's been overfunded in five minutes it's just complete nonsense yeah um don't want to sort of uh, make that too much from myth but um yeah so we we did like a huge amount of work before going live on the crowd had several big angel investors invest that took about six to nine months to get that over the line. Um, and then when we went live on the crowd, we were able to sort of virtually double what we raised in that round. I think we did about 700K angel, 700K um, on the crowd. Um, and the crowd is one of those things that I think if anybody's sort of listening that's thinking about it, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. We use Crowdcube, um, there's other ones out there obviously. Um, and what it allows you to do is obviously get a load of people who are like brilliant advocates of your products. Um, and but I think what some people think about crowdfunding is it is like a doddle and you can just rock up, whack up a few sentences and you raise like half a million quid. It's just like so far from the truth. Yeah. People say it's um, a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. It takes ages. You've got, I mean, it's an opportunity to obviously, you know, brand, get your brand out there and creating a video that's super hot and kind of gets across all your core messaging and stuff. It takes a long time. There's a lot of due diligence that has to go into it. You have to submit all your numbers and everything and very, very, very hot on that. And I think that is actually a really good thing because, you know, ultimately they've got people that are investing in businesses that have no idea what they're doing. You know, I don't, you know, invest in another business. I wouldn't really have a clue what I'm doing. So, you know, they do have to be super transparent about the information they're sharing. So anyway, long story short, we did that round, closed it. We had that 1.4 million. And then beyond that, we did a further two rounds, one from, I guess, like a sort of super angel that invested quite a big amount of money um, in between that and the final round. And then the latest round was like sort of like a pre-series A where we did 1.8 million. Um, and that was the first time that we'd actually got a, a VC involved, um, which was Love Ventures. And that was, uh, you know, and that's a venture capitalist, by the way. Um, and that was the point where we sort of, 
we're really happy that we've managed to get that because that was sort of secured, not secured, but you know, we had that institutional investor that, that was backing us um, that might, you know, then be able to sort of follow on in the future. And we had like a great sort of a network of investors that, that sort of preceded that. Um, and, and then, yeah, for, for our sins, we decided to go back on the crowd again <laughs> and, uh, and top up that round, um, which supposedly was the worst month. That was in 2022. And it was the worst month in the entire year and probably the decade for investment. Um, oh no! So we did. It did do well. Like we we raised, as I say, we raised one point eight million at a twenty three million valuation, which you know, looking back, is like really, really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know, you don't always, you don't always think that at the time. Um, and I think if it, if it had been a slightly different you know economic environment, then it would have been slightly different. But yeah, we've been very fortunate with our investment rounds. You know, we've got some great investors, some great advisors, and people in there now. And um, you know, I think. But one thing I would definitely say about investment is it's, you know, people put a sort of shiny kind of, you know, thing around it as if it's just this amazing thing. It's it, anybody that can create a business without investment, like massive respect. Like yes. it's if you can do that, then you're nailing it. And that's and that's what I think it's coming back to now is, you know, profitability is such an important thing now. And that's what VCs and investors really care about is your path to profitability and how you're going to actually not just chuck money at this business, you know, like, you know, investors have been scarred in the past by some of these businesses that have raised hundreds of millions of pounds, chucked it in marketing, and then eventually realized that they haven't actually got a business, you know, and there's no business model underneath it. And I think, you know, now it's very much, which I, I, I sort of loving, sort of hating, but that going back to basics of, of how can we make this business profitable? And, and, you know, that's, you know, ultimately got to be the aim for everybody. So definitely, I think there's, definitely an element of like reassurance when you have other people backing you because they yeah. they believe in your vision and like they get it and they believe in you and grubby which is fantastic yeah but i can imagine as well like once that's all happened and gone through the, the pressure it's like wow like you're doing this for yourself and the team but like you've now got a load of others yeah. who you're doing this for as well and i think that can be really good pressure obviously and yeah. but i can imagine quite scary as well yeah, I, 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 yeah, I guess I, I tend not to think about it too much day to day, because I think that probably doesn't encourage like the, the best quality decisions. Um, but yeah, it definitely is pressure. I think I feel even more pressure from the crowd investors. Mm. Um, you know, one that really sort of sticks out to me and kind of you know, uh, is is like a one of our literally our very first customer that we delivered to, a uh, family, uh, who I don't obviously say their name, but. Uh, they invested 10 grand on the crowds and wow he phoned me up and he was like um martin i see you've gone live in the crowds like we've been getting boxes like since day dot um i looked on the account they've now had like 175 boxes or something and it's just like nuts to me anyway he phoned me up and he was like you know want to put 10 grand in and i said to him i was like don't do it (laughs) don't do that what are you doing doing? (laughs) um and uh yeah i think you know but it is, and he obviously then dig dig um, and invest that money, and those are the sorts of things where you know it, it says to me that we've got a great thing going on. We, we have like built a great product, which you know is all down to the team. Um, but yeah, those are the sorts sorts of investors that sort of keep me like super motivated. Hundred um, percent. I mean, that know. is incredible. Yeah. I think another really nice way of looking at investment is like ultimately sometimes you can think, oh wow, I'm so lucky to have them. Yeah. But then also they're lucky to have you. Like. I got told that once and I was like, oh yeah, like that's so true. Like they're investing in an amazing business. Like they're investing in something huge, something incredible. And like you're providing a service that affects our lives every day. And like, that's something worth investing in as well as sometimes it's like, oh wow, like thank you so much. But it's actually like, yeah. no, this is a two way thing. Like, yeah. you know, obviously you're super grateful for the investment and like couldn't be where you were without them. But also they're lucky to have such a great business to yeah, in. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing you do realize is that over time, sort of the amount of sacrifice that goes into it, um, you know, and that yeah, obviously getting their money is is amazing, and it is something you have to be like super super grateful for. But there is a lot of you know, huge, what, huge amount of effort and sacrifice that goes in sort of behind the scenes as well. Mm. So yeah, agree. no, it's an amazing thing to share though, because I think it does get over glamorized sometimes. Definitely. It does get like 
yeah, you hear a lot of things and if you don't really know the whole story, it's easy to kind of assume and like presume how things work. But Yeah, and you can you can see it from the outside and you see a business that raises, you know, 20, 30 million pounds or, or whatever and these numbers just like sort of, it's like, oh, multi-millions, like that must have been like really easy to get hold of and, you know, it... Maybe it used to be. It probably did used to be a, a lot easier to get that those that sorts of amounts of money, but it's definitely not now. Mm. And um, you know, I think it's it might change, like you know, in the next eighteen months and and come slightly back. But it definitely is tougher to get hold of like significant amounts of capital. And I think that will encourage the best businesses to like shine through, mm. um, the ones that are profitable and the ones that are doing a, a great job at, at being frugal and being efficient with cash, like we were saying at the beginning. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And also, it's easy for people to say, oh, wow, look at them, they're smashing it. Yeah. And like, yeah, 100%, they're smashing it because they're providing a product which people believe in, but the pressure starts now. Like, yeah, now you've got yeah, that. Yeah. It's then like, they now need to go smash it. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. And it's good yeah. to kind of like dig into and like understand a bit more about the realities of like what actually happens when you raise. Definitely. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So I now want to touch on being a solo entrepreneur yep. because often people say, oh, I highly recommend doing it with a co-founder. Like I couldn't have done it without X, Y, Z. Yep. And I get told this all the time and I'm like, oh, please stop saying that because like I know it's really hard. Yeah. How have you found it and have you ever thought about, I mean, in the early days, did you ever think about bringing anyone in as, as a co-founder? In short, yes. Um, I think... At the beginning, I'd used to go to like networking events and chat to people with a view that maybe I'd find a co-founder that would be on the same wavelength as me. Um, and however, found it. I mean, at times it's very, very lonely, um, particularly in the early days. You know, I mean, you know, you'll know that solo, solo entrepreneur. It's, it's, it's tough, and you, you know, you do need people to bounce ideas off. Um, and I'd say I'm probably like. I'm probably an extrovert or like definitely leaning towards that way and you know because of that I feed off other people and being in the room with somebody else and like having a conversation with them that's where I'm, I feel like I perform my best mm. and I get the most energy and I'm definitely not the sort of work from home type I'm in the office every single day um, you know I hate that idea of just like sitting in an empty room with nobody to talk to it's just like hell to me um, so yeah I mean basically I did want to find a co-founder it I, I didn't have anybody that I sort of immediately thought would be the right fit for that um, or was in that sort of, you know, stage in their career. Often it's, you know, timing really with those things. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I it has been quite a lonely journey at times, but as you build a network around you, you get investment on board, you start to build a team, the whole thing becomes far less lonely. Yeah. And I'm just really, really lucky that I've got such a, I genuinely do feel really lucky to have such an incredible team that, you know, are able to sort of you know basically pick up all the pieces that you know we 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 dovetail well we've got a team that, that that you know we we feed off each other in terms of our different skill sets and that's what I think is really important about a sort of startup team definitely I do think a co-founder has to happen kind of organically yeah like I know there are these sites that you can kind of put yeah. like a yeah. kind of a CV I guess out there and be like right I'm looking for this kind of person but ultimately it's got to be an organic fit and I think if it happens, amazing. If it doesn't, then that's just it. I completely agree. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, finding a co-founder, you've got to be, it, it's like being in a relationship, you know, from what I hear from other sort of co-founders, you know, you're literally spending your life with them. Every single day, you're going to be speaking to them. Mm. You've got to have an incredible bond with that person. Um, and, you know, there's people in my team that, you know, I feel like I've got that that bond with, um, yeah. you know, and do actually speak to them every single day. So, in some ways, I like feel like I do have that um, sort of connection now, but in those in that first sort of eighteen months where there was nobody else, um, that is really really hard because you yeah you definitely do need people around you that you can bounce ideas off, and I think getting that my my one sort of like piece of advice I guess would be like for people to get like a, a mentor or somebody that they're able to just ask anything to, and they they don't feel uncomfortable in asking stupid questions and. Mm. you know if you're feeling low then you're able to talk to them and that kind of thing because yeah, yeah it can it can be really hard definitely I mean I've been lucky enough to have mentors but I'm still in that stage where yeah. I have days where I'm like I am going insane yeah. like yeah. I'm definitely a people person I need yeah. to speak to people and like 
I mentioned earlier being on like the NatWest accelerator has been yeah. amazing for yeah. that um but yeah it is tough but I do think also you've got to find someone with the same passion for what you're doing as you as well like when you kind of get so far in like you've invested so much of your own money your own time yeah. like you're already so far along the journey that sometimes you're like well how can I then bring someone in when you know Definitely. I've already invested so much yeah but um I read something else in an article that I think you kind of said to embrace the uncertainty and I yeah. read that and I was like Mm, that sounds like obviously really good advice but also really hard like <laughs> how have you done that and like can we can you like explore that a bit more yeah it's a good good question I I suppose yeah you have you have got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable like is the maybe the easiest way of saying it um there's nothing comfortable about you know quitting your job and going without a salary for potentially you don't know how long um and that that level of uncertainty of of not knowing when you're actually going to be be able to pay yourself you know is, is what the the brutal sort of reality of of like trying to create your own business is at the beginning um i think i went without a salary for about 6 to 9 months and there was you know just about had enough money to sort of to sort of get me through um and so yeah i guess like being comfortable that things are going to be really uncertain and they are going to be really uncomfortable and you are going to feel really shit at times you know it's it's far easier said than done um and you know i've definitely had like plenty of kind of low moments um but um yeah i think you've got got to kind of try and embrace it mm. um and just sort of confront every day and be like you know whatever happens happens i'm just going to give this my absolute all and I've definitely always sort of tried to impress that on the team that like every day counts, like mm. every day counts. Um, and it really does. Yeah. Um, I've always felt that. I mean, especially in the early days, I used to think like, I've got to get these things done this week. Like it'd be a very, very small amount of things. But if I didn't get those things done, I'd be like livid of myself, like internally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that sort of uncertainty is, is yeah, can be hard to, to deal with. No, definitely. And I think if you don't put that pressure on yourself, no one else is going to be putting that on you. Yeah. It's very yeah. easy to be like, okay, I want to achieve these things. But if I don't, oh well. But yeah. like, no, because no one, you know, in a kind of a corporate environment that you wouldn't be allowed to get away with that. So you've kind of got to add that same pressure to yourself, which is yeah. quite hard. And you have kind of got to go with the flow a little bit, I think sometimes, mm. you know, because you can make to-do lists and you can try and say you're going to do things and you can be upset with yourself because you haven't got them done but sometimes you have just got to go with something that might happen that might take you down a, a different route to what you're expecting and not always just saying you know being blinkered and being like I'm going to do this because that's what I said I was going to do you know leaving yourself open to maybe seeing some of those other opportunities that that are out there without going down too many rabbit holes because that is also a risk yeah no definitely but it is hard. Like, yes. I know we spoke earlier about kind of, like, the business and the runnings and how yeah. it all happens. And, like, I think it's important to highlight that it is a challenge. Yeah, for like sure. Like, we mentioned how, you know, manufacturing a toothbrush would be a lot easier. Yeah, and like, 100%. Yeah. It would be so much easier. Yeah. Probably not as exciting at times. <laughs> and the highs would be as high. Exciting, put it that way. Yeah. Lows probably would be as low. But I think, yeah, it's also important to highlight that you know, consumers just open their door and the box is just there and they're like, oh, great. And like, but what goes on behind the scenes? Like, yeah. it's tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the recipe kit industry is, maybe it's not. I mean, I feel like it's underestimated a little bit in terms of the, the sort of some of the complexities that sit behind it. I mean, I suppose every entrepreneur would probably say that about their own business. It seems simple on the surface, but, you know, like now we're sort of packing, you know, close to 200,000 SKUs a week in our boxes. Um, and like that, that comes with like an immense set of challenges where we have 10 recipes a week right now. We're going to be upping it to 20 or more this year. Um, even with 10 recipes a week, that presents about 900 and something combinations of recipe bag because it's effectively like a pin code when you're adding, adding different numbers and whatever to a box so increasing that to 20 takes it to like two and a half thousand combinations or something like that so what you've got to have in place behind the scenes is is a lot and you can imagine every time you create a new recipe you're effectively 
going, okay, here's another 12 SKUs that you're probably going to add to your list. And you're like, okay, where am I going to get that from? How are we going to pack that? You know, it, it's there's a, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Mm. And then you've got different couriers and all these different companies delivering into your warehouse. And yeah, yeah it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, people might find, I don't know, meal prepping stressful on a Sunday. But like, yeah. imagine meal prepping for like, Oh, I don't know, 500, 600 <laughs> yeah. people, all with different preferences. Like, that is just really, really tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I now want to discuss the guilt. So, solo founder, yeah. you know, how do you find the guilt maybe on weekends or yeah. in the evenings? Like, how have you found that and how do you cope with it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something I can really associate with. Like, I I think I'm better at it now, definitely. Um you know what we now like three and a half four years in almost um and i think in the early days i used to really struggle at, at weekends to to actually switch off um you know basically on a saturday morning i just get up and i just go to a cafe and just start smashing out more work or whatever i needed to do and the same on a sunday and um you know didn't make much time for socializing definitely have you know you know regrets about sort of not giving friends the attention that I wish I had done in those times and um you know I think that's just sort of part and parcel of it and I I do think I'm much better now at like decompartmentalizing my time and being like okay this weekend I'm gonna go and play hockey on a Saturday and go out with the lads afterwards and you know like have that like structure to my life basically because you know I find exercise is you know a a huge part for me um of, of like reducing that stress reducing that guilt of not working whatever um but ultimately i think the realization comes where you're like there's no way i can like did, you know work every day and be having good output like you just become less productive like 100 mm. percent. and i and i definitely started to realize that over time it's like i'm just tired i'm being just useless i'm you know not put you know giving the output that i could if i was just giving myself time to to re-energize over the weekend and actually relax and kick back and watch the football or whatever you mm, know um, yeah I think practice I was gonna say practice makes perfect but I wouldn't say it necessarily is perfect I feel like there's yeah. like you find your your way of working it out and I yeah. feel like practice kind of gets you closer to that when yeah I think everyone works and balances it differently Definitely. but I think you've just got to find your your way of doing it yeah, yeah. And I think exercise is yeah is huge I mean I can't actually start my day without doing something because yeah. otherwise I just I think when you're on your own as well and like it's like your time to like release and like get yeah. everything out before you then hit the day oh definitely definitely like it's you know it's hugely important to like reducing your stress and mm. you know I, I notice it if I haven't exercised in like four or five days which for me is like fairly rare um, but you know if I haven't I'll feel it and I can feel myself getting like you know more and more sort of pent up and you know all that stuff yeah Yeah. definitely so i want to finish with two questions back to the topic of food yeah so the first one is what is your favorite grubby meal oh it's a tricky one because now ferg who's our head of rest development is going to say well you picked one of your own um because yeah (laughs) i feel like that's normal i uh, i'd probably say like the mexican butternut fajitas are, are a bit of a nice yeah they're great they're really really good that sounds really yeah. good they're like with like a sort of coconut sauce roasted butternut peppers super soft avocado nice yeah that sounds great yeah and my last question is what i ask everyone and i love this question it's what is your last meal so starter main course and dessert what would it yeah. be yeah i think i'd go starter would be like there was this like local italian restaurant near me that did this like super thin garlic bread pizza it was just like just unbelievable Mm. so i think i'd have probably that maybe some like some sort of like dips like on the side of it main probably has to be a grubby meal yeah i'd say um i really like our miso mushroom um which has like big chunky wedges with it and like an asian guac which is Mm. like has like ginger and chili and lime through it wow Um, sounds nice which is like it was one of those things i hadn't used miso much before and that dish was just like this is awesome so yeah. I always always order that um, 
And then dessert, I'd probably, I'd probably get like a panna cotta. I think I'm oh, a big fan of panna cotta. Nice one. Yeah, some sort of berry panna cotta. Yeah, yeah. that sounds like a great last meal. <laughs> Martin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all things grubby. I think it's a really tough but exciting journey, and I think you guys are really smashing it. Like I. I'm obviously in the plant-based space, but I do hear grubby a lot and I know yeah. it's tough out there, but I think you guys are doing a really good job. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, please share and subscribe to this podcast to support us and help us grow. If you are listening on Apple Podcast, please leave us a review and a rating only if it's a nice one because it really does help get the podcast out there to new listeners. But thank you so much again and see you next week.